1: This is a CBC Podcast.
0: Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayand. In 2010, shoppers at a food court in Welland, Ontario, were taking a lunch break during their pre-Christmas shopping. Then, out of nowhere, a young woman stood up at her table... With her cell phone to her ear and started singing this. Of course, the singers are performing what may be the most famous piece of classical music of all time. The Hallelujah Chorus by George Friedrich Handel. The Hallelujah Chorus is the high point of Handel's 1741 oratorio and his Messiah is now a musical staple all over the world. Yet it was never actually meant to be performed at Christmas, and it doesn't even feature very much from the New Testament. It turns out that Handel's Messiah, as popular as it is, is full of mysteries and secrets. One person who can help us unlock its hidden treasures is Ivar's Torrens. Ivars directs the Tafel Music Chamber Choir in Toronto, and has pondered Messiah's secrets his entire professional life. The
2: of the Lord and of and of
0: Today, Ivars joins Ideas contributor Robert Harris to share their thoughts about its creation, appeal, and power. This is Messiah Revealed in nine movements. Movement one, the big hit.
3: So, so here we are, Ivars, right in the middle of the greatest piece of music maybe ever composed, the you Hallelujah Chorus. Yep. Here we go. King, King of kings, forever and ever, hallelujah, hallelujah, and
1: Lord of lords. Uh, the sopranos start their climb. And just go, hallelujah. And Lord of Lords, and they hold it
3: until they're blue. And King of Kings, and a minor key, King. minor.
1: And Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, and then it still unfolds. Yeah.
3: It's amazing, you know. It's so simple. It's so simple. It's just going up and up, but there's up, that but minor chord yep. that gives just a hint of darkness in here. So there there's secrets in here. There's secrets in this score. People this think they know this piece so well, yep. but hidden in it handles all these secrets. It's sort of the, the theme of our whole hour is that the messiah that people love and have listened to for centuries, literally, it isn't exactly what it seems to be. It's something more interesting. There's so. always something to find. So We've all listened to the Hallelujah Chorus. If we've watched television commercials or been yep, sing-alongs yep. and some of us have attempted to sing it, not many of us have attempted to conduct it. The sense I get for the Hallelujah Chorus is that conductors just wind up this thing and then they <laughs> let, let it go. It go no. right? Well, it comes to the
1: point where where you've built the piece up and it gets to this climax, but it itself is a little miniature beautifully structured piece that if you give away its secrets too soon, uh, you know, you have to be really aware of the dramatic pacing. And so when I started, I have to not only gauge what the tempo was from the piece before, but know where this is, how this is going to sit in terms of what's going to come for part three, and I know that my Redeemer liveth. So pacing and not giving away stuff too soon. Because finally, when you get to where we arrived, and Lord of Lords, it's only the first step. Because then he starts going through, and he shall reign, and he shall reign. And then he starts again with the... And we're still not done, you know? And by the end, it's this whirlwind of exhortation of... Hallelujah, forever and ever and ever. And it just, it can spin out of control. You have a quote. Well, it's an amazing, it's an amazing quote. And it's from a letter describing a Christmas performance from uh, a piece written in New York in 1900 called Aunt Deborah, Here's the Messiah. (laughs) And it's, and it's in Aunt Deborah's words, and I'll try and do the accent as it's written here okay Uh, by and by jesus has come out of the grave and all heaven is rejoicing over his victory they called that part the hallelujah chorus and we were going up a broad gold staircase for they sang over and over king of kings and lord of lords and each time on a higher note higher and higher still till my poor soul could hardly bear to stay into this old body and i held on to the back of the seat ahead of me to keep from rising up into the air
0: Hallelujah. 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 Movement two, the work.
3: So Ivar's, uh, and Deborah was on to something there, but you know, <laughs> we are talking about Messiah, Messiah. Um, arguably the most famous piece of classical music ever written you know it's 1741 42 it's yep. 270 years old you've conducted this do you know how many times you've conducted this piece uh, it's it's 200 now it's somewhere
1: <laughs> on the border of 200 it's now i think going to be over at
3: so what is it why this Piece. how is it possible that one piece of music has withstood the test of what are the secrets in the Messiah that make it not just so relevant in seventeen forty one, relevant at the end of the nineteenth century, you know, packs houses throughout North America? There's fourteen performances of sold-out messiah in Toronto every year. Yeah. Why? Well, there's I
1: think there are a number of factors. The first of all, and and that's the plainest to see, it's great music. You know, it's filled with Lyrical melodies, memorable melodies, I equate them to the best of the songs that Frank Sinatra used to sing or the Broadway musical tunes that everyone could whistle. They they catch the ear immediately. I mean, I know that My Redeemer Th- Liveth became so famous that the middle section, da-da-da-dee, became
3: one of the, the little motifs of Big Ben. Da-da-dee-dum, ba-da-dee-da. But... When we get beyond the music side of it, I mean, we're—I mean, this is, quote, unquote, the greatest story ever told. This is the story of Jesus. So far, quite apart from the music, how does Messiah, which tells a very deeply religious story, manage to succeed in a basically secular age? Well, I think people, of course, are affected by the
1: text. They are inspired by the text, the idea of... Goodwill towards men, uh, peace on earth, all charity, all all the good things that humanity uh, should be doing. But when the Victorians transferred the Messiah from Lent to Christmas, so mid- this was
3: originally written
1: for Easter, no? exactly as a as a kind of contem- contemplative piece. The Victorians transferred it to to Christmas, and you realize that a Christmas carol by Dickens has the same sort of motives of. Of charity and goodwill, and so it became one of our rituals. I think it's a mishmash of secular and sacred. It just gives us a good feeling.
3: You know, but you know, it interests me because w- when you first listen to it, you th- you hear this piece that is all of the things you say—open and generous—and then you realize that it's telling exactly the story you want to hear. That in the end, we all will be saved. We all will be transformed. There's nothing to worry exactly. about. Oh, come ye. That's not that realistic a story, you know? No, but that's what we long
1: for during December. We want to get away from darkness and the kind of thoughts that uh, a Bach passion will give us. These oratorios were basically secular entertainments. So the fact that it's about the story of Jesus Christ, it's not so much a coincidence, but it's an added bonus, if you will, because all the other oratorios deal with Old Testament stories. It's a comfort, as you say, it's a comfort to us. Around these times when we're looking for some kind of sanity in our lives, we need ritual. And there's nothing wrong with a little mystery and and ritual to focus our lives to see the bigger picture. And Messiah gives us the big picture. Handel is the kind of composer who can paint the huge canvas. Ultimately, that's what he is as an opera composer. And he does the same thing in Messiah.
0: Movement three, one Messiah or many?
3: So we're here to look at the Messiah both from a cultural point of view but also from a musical point of view because you are a conductor. You know, I think people don't understand exactly what a conductor does. In fact, I know people don't understand what a conductor (laughs) does because they come and they watch you waving your arms around and they think to themselves... Wouldn't they just keep playing even if he wasn't waving his arms around? Right, right. But, or they say, oh, I'd love to do that too. <laughs> yeah, well, we all would love to do that too. That yeah. is no question. But, you know, it's interesting. You know, we talk about one Messiah. We talk about the Messiah. We've been talking mm-hmm. about it. There is no. I mean, no. that's a that's a complete um, fraud. You know, there's so many Messiahs in a way. He remodeled the work every season. He custom fit
1: the arias according to the cast of singers, and their voice types, he would rewrite them entirely. So we have three or four versions of most of the arias, but
3: these are all marvelous in their own way. Yes, it is not a fixed piece. This is such an important idea, though. You know, I think that, I mean, you understand that because you... You look at the scores, but, you know, when we think of classical art and and the importance that classical art, whether it's literature, whether it's music, the sense that there's something eternal about it, something unchanging about it, it's, we need, that's a need I think we have as a society. Yes. The reality of it is much more fluid and it's scary to think that it's fluid. We want these things to be fixed, you yep. know?
1: Well, but, I think it's also a, a 20th, 21st century thing that we need to, to have things in a certain way. The 19th century didn't look at it that way. Mozart updated Messiah Mm -hmm. to the tastes of the time. And this kind of rewriting is the kind of thing that was going on right through the 19th century into the kind of bombast that we
3: get in Messiah with the modern symphony orchestra and the Chorus of a Thousand. Well, I want to talk to you about that because I know You don't like the word authentic and the people in what we call the historically informed performance movement. But I'm going to use authentic for a moment because the idea of getting back to the way things, some version of the way, um, it's such an important idea and it's such a recent idea. It means something to me that we... As you say, the nineteenth century had no, no, no interest in that. Why well let's listen first and then I'll ask you this question. Yeah. So I'm gonna play two versions of the overture, one of which is yours. Okay? okay, the second one is yours. I think you mentioned to me that the first Messiah you ever heard on record was Sir Malcolm Sargent, is that That's correct? Right. That's right. Nineteen forty six, okay? So here's the opening of Messiah this is the Huddersfield choir. So take a listen. This is one interpretation of how Messiah would sound. Yeah. Now, here's the way you conduct that same piece of music. Those are two different pieces of music. That is not an interpretation, Ivars. That is a different piece of music. It's yep. so shocking to me when I hear it. you know. And the Sergeant was very, very famous. the The notes on the page that gave rise to the Malcolm Sargent version, yep, and that gave rise to that, yep. are the same. Yes, but those are just notes. They're a shorthand. You have to know the language. You can take the
1: same notes and you can you can translate them into your own familiar language, or you can go back and figure out what that language is and what do these, mean, these notes mean in, within the context of that language. So I, notes, the black specks on the page, are just the beginning, and I need to try and figure out what the composer is telling me and and music is very cryptic that way and that's why we all bash our heads against the wall saying What well, wish he was just here could he just answer the question for me <laughs> what the hell do you mean here
0: for the original Messiah.
3: So the question of historically informed performance raises the question of what Handel thought Messiah was in his time. Because for for us, it's as you say, it's this ritual we troop down, you know, it's sing along, it's wonderful, and we bring our texts and we have a wonderful time. Uh, You know, that's not what was happening in England when he was writing this piece. I mean, it was completely different for him. And it seems to me we, we need to know to really appreciate this piece, what motivated him to write it. Completely. And and the
1: whole idea of having an oratorio season uh, in London was due to the fact that um, England was having a lot of social problems at the time. You had the real huge problem of gin, where it was being made uh, in basements and mothers were drinking it, people were dying from impure gin. There was crime, poverty, the decadence and the immorality of the upper classes. All these things were troubling to the government and to the church. And so they decided that during Lent, this should be a time of reflection and and for contemplation. And so opera wasn't allowed. And instead it was replaced by the oratorio. And the oratorio is basically like an opera without sets and costumes. And it deals with... Old Testament texts,
3: moralistic things. So, so this is like a moral, there's a real moral sense. Very much so. We call it Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah, we're going to go Handel's Messiah. But there's a forgotten man in Messiah. Someone had to put together words, that the Charles words. Charles yeah. Jennings, this forgotten, unknown, obscure figure who put together the text for Messiah. And the texts for Messiah are extraordinary because we're telling the life of Jesus and all the texts... Virtually, not all, but a lot of them are from the Old Testament. They're written 700 years before Jesus' birth. Um, And in fact, except for one small portion that we'll listen to, none of the gospel texts are used. There's some from Revelation, there's some from the letters to Corinthians— and he's changed the words of some of these things. He's he's sort of played fast and loose with the scriptures to create um, something of his own. Yeah, but but for a very real purpose, which we have no understanding. I mean, talk about a, a surprise about the Messiah. Yeah. This is a part of a religious controversy. Completely, uh, I, had no, I had no idea of that at all.
1: There was a a, a faction called Deism that was uh, raising its its head, and to some people, it was a
3: very ugly head. Well, but Deism is this notion that. God, that you, it's basically God without Christianity. It's, it's God in nature and God within in the world, Yeah,
1: right? but they rejected the idea of prophecy and revelation, and therefore, in a way, also uh, rejecting the idea of anything to do with mystery in religion. This really disturbed the Church of England. It disturbed a lot of people. Jennings was a very strong anti-deist, and... He created the text of Messiah. As you say, he used Old Testament prophecy and and revelation to tell the story of Christ, to say, you know what, there is proof that this is important. And it's a kind of a, if you will, a propaganda piece where he gives that text to Handel, the best composer in the country, to push that propaganda forward. Now, Jennings also was an oddball. He was the thorn in Handel's side from day one, and he always felt that Handel just mangled
3: anything that that he gave him. You know, it's interesting because when we listen, you know, we innocently sing, you know, "For unto us a child is born," or "Hallelujah," or we have no idea that we're we're participating in a religious, vital, mean religious controversy when we're at doing this. At the time, this. yes. All but right. this idea of mystery—you notice
1: that the the idea of this mysticism of things mm-hmm. bigger than us comes at the the least expected moments, they don't happen in big choruses or big arias, they happen in the recitativo. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. They're there to show, aha, here's another prophecy, another mystery, where the revelation. So go away, deism.
0: Movement Five: The Music.
3: You mentioned at the beginning, and I can't argue with you that, for all the talk about Messiah and its texts and its historical context, it is the music of this piece that is the the, the secret of its success. Yep. Um, but what's the secret of the success of the music is what hmm. I'd like to know because, you know, from my point of view as a layperson, uh, as well as the melodies, it's so accessible. This music, you know, it's it just seems to be written perfectly for you to hear it. I don't know if that makes any sense. Or it not. does. It does. As I said before,
1: many of the melodies are so lyrical. And, you know, there's there's one point um, that is subliminal in a way. Um, if you look at the arias in Messiah, most of them are in triple meter. One, two, three, one, two, I know that my... And there's this beautiful... So it's like a little. dance. It's it a- is. Triple meter is like a waltz. It it lets you flow through the music. This is, I think, where the positivism comes in in the piece, this this openness that carries us through the entire piece.
3: And, you know, the choruses are probably the key, although you wouldn't know, want to... I mean, the aries are gorgeous. So let's talk a bit about... And he shall purify. And so there's another little aspect of this. So this is the one that he shall purify. The sons of Levi. What? Purifying the sons of Levi, you know, as a son of Levi, you know, suggests to me that I'm going to be melted down and then refashioned. That's exactly exactly. Yeah. So there's there's an edge to this, you know. But you don't get that. You know, you don't. For two
1: reasons. It comes out of the aria. Uh, but who may abide the day of his coming, for he is like a refiner's fire. But the thing is, it goes directly into the chorus. Notice the chorus starts with an and. So is it's, for he is like a refiner's fire, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, is all one sentence. So he goes very easily from the ending of the aria into this chorus, but actually if you take it, uh, the correct tempo, you get the licking flames with um,
2: And
1: it comes itself. The music comes from a little Italian cantata. To take something that's a simple little duet for two soprano voices from uh, something he wrote earlier, he decides this would be great stuff for this particular chorus, and the text works. It It works. works beautifully.
2: Messiah Revealed
0: Movement 6, Handel, the Great Storyteller.
3: So one of the great things about Handel, you mentioned that he was an opera composer, and the storytelling, I mean, apart from all the theology and you know, just the sheer storytelling... That happens in Messiah is pretty remarkable and especially remarkable because when we think of an oratorio, generally there are characters. I mean, it's, it's not yes, staged. there's a plot. There's and- a plot and there's characters and we have this great story and there's none of that here. There's no characters. There's no, I mean, there's a sort of a plot, but not really. It's a very. It's all implied. And, and yet it's so beautifully told. That's such, that talk about uh, a, a secret you know, yes, of a, a, composer, mystery. a mystery, yes. a secret of how you can tell a story without having a character, without having a speech. Yes. Um, how does he do that? You know, what's the secret to him doing that?
1: Well, I find that in Messiah, he does something more than he does in other uh, oratories, maybe because of this lack of explicit story and drama in that he takes traditional forms of the recitativo, uh, the f- pitter-patter stuff, fast, and then you've got something in between, which is called the accompagnato, and then you have, the next step is arioso, which is almost an aria, and then aria, and then chorus. Here Handel melds things. He connects maybe not a recit into an aria, maybe he'll go from a recit to a chorus, or he'll waffle, going back and forth. And one of the best places that he does this is in... The nativity sequence.
3: Yeah. So this is the one place in Messiah where they do use Luke. They use yes. gospel text because, you know, and there were shepherds in the fields. How can you not use those <laughs> exactly. texts? So uh, I want to play that because it starts with this unusual pastoral, uh, a sort of like a second overture. Yep. It begins this. It's a little bagpipe tune. Bagpipe tune? It is. It, and it's, it's uh,
1: the Italian bagpipers. They still do it to this day. At Christmastide, they come down from the hills playing their pipes to welcome the Christ child and they play these lilting lullabyish melodies on their
3: bagpipes and Handel of course spent time and in Italy and he spent
1: time in Italy in his 20s and he heard this so when he's back in London at this particular moment he's thinking of the coming birth of Christ, what better way than to announce it with a little bagpipe tune Now you hear the drone of yeah, the pipes? I do And even the ornaments are bagpipish. And he writes mezzo piano in the distance, like a memory almost of his good days in Italy. The shepherds out in the fields tending their flocks. Serene. And now the last note becomes the first note of the recit. There were
2: shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over
1: the flock. Now strings come in and its big wings, as the angel descends. And then the hesitation of the shepherds. And a bit of worry? Oh, dear. simple, another recita-
2: recitative. Now...
1: Now we have another accompagnato, and these are the whole host of angels coming down. Hear the little wings? And here they are. Jubilation in the heavens. And now his music for peace on earth is just an octave. And quiet, calm. And then back up to heaven. And the angels <laughs> flying around. And now they're closer. Because at the beginning he says, play them at a the distance, piano. And becoming closer and closer. And back to peace on earth. And now they have the message. It becomes fugal because it's important. Listen to this, shepherds. And they all start flying around again. Glory to God. hymn of And Peace on Earth is now in harmony. Another fugal bit? You're repeating the words? Like Foghorn Leghorn, you're saying, I said, goodwill! And I say, (laughs) goodwill! As quickly as they arrive to tell this to the shepherds, it dissipates, and he reduces the orchestra to just a little string band that's slowly making its way back up into heaven. And gone.
3: You know, that entire thing that we just listened to was three, about four minutes of music. You know what? I want you sitting beside me for every performance in the side. <laughs> I'm Doing that from the beginning <laughs> to the three hours later to the end. That yeah. was fantastic. It's so interesting to hear from your perspective, of course, because of I can hear you speak it and I can hear you conduct it right. at the same time. And it's what you were talking about before, about revelation. So, you know, surprise is one thing where you 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 see something you didn't expect, but revelation is is, is, is broader and more wonderful because what it is is music I've heard and then you, you reveal to me Through your own insight and through your own training and your own instincts, exactly what this means. And four minutes
1: that are, of course, we all know, lead to the great aria, Rejoice Greatly, which is just a reflection of the nativity scene that we've just had. It's so potent.
0: you're listening to messiah revealed we're heard on cbc radio one in canada and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas i'm nala Ayed.
1: i'm helena bonham
0: carter and for bbc radio 4 this is history's secret heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from world war ii they had no idea that she was britain's top female codebreaker. we'll hear of daring risk takers What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains.
3: Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend.
0: Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Ivar's Torrance, director of the Tafel Music Chamber Choir and veteran CBC broadcaster Robert Harris are talking about Handel's 1741 masterpiece, Messiah. One of the most popular pieces of music of all time, and yet one that still has lots of surprises and secrets, even after more than two and a half centuries. This episode is called Messiah Revealed. Movement 7 The Passion.
3: So I guess not unexpectedly the longest portion of Messiah is the Passion yeah. section, the section uh, of Christ's, um, I don't know what you would call it, because and I, I say that because normally in, in the Passion concerns the crucifixion mm-hmm. of Jesus. That's the moment of his greatest um, triumph eventually, but also his greatest pain and our greatest confusion, you know, yeah. when we see God. You know, dying in front of us, but of course, because Jennings doesn't use New Testament texts, That's right. he can't set the no. crucifixion. So the low point in Messiah is not the death of Christ; it's the social rejection of Christ when truth isn't recognized, where it, it, it's presented to you, and, it, and you don't see it. This this opening of part two, the kind of this
1: bleak. Bleak situation that we get in in the opening he was despised, the rejection the the mocking it 's that aspect it 's not the the physical uh, passion but more the psychological the 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 rejection as you say an oratorio traditionally is always in three parts, so we 've been through the introduction, comfort ye, the nativity, his birth, and now part the second opens as you say with this G minor and it's in a form again that reflects the opening overture right. the symph- symphony and here though we have this exhortation on the word behold but the orchestra after this I call them two big heavy dusty Bibles you get two <laughs> there's the second one then the orchestra does this and then the second's out everyone's behold 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 they get a cadence and then find the choir one by one they're doing the same thing this leap up and the whole opening section is nothing more than an amplification just like in the hallelujah chorus forever and ever and ever behold behold and then he finally says what the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world To a big cadence. Then he goes back to, to say the same, exactly the same thing, but in the middle. that taketh away, so we're in G minor cadence here. The cadence. The sopranos come in by themselves with that note. Now that is...
3: It's in G minor. It's in G
1: minor, it's the third, but we don't know where we are. Now that could be part of this, right? Yes, or it could be...
3: And, of course, he's prefiguring exactly what's going to happen with he was despised. Exactly well, he the same does, change.
1: He does two things. The sacrificial lamb. That taketh away. There's a calm. And now the figure of that taketh away is calm. It's soothing.
3: And we're in E-flat major. That
1: taketh away the sin of the world, which he's going to, it's a foreshadowing of what he's about to do in E-flat major for he was despised it.
3: interesting to me about this is that as a listener, I, I understand all of this, but it's all subliminal. I have no idea. This is It's going by very quickly. Well, in a way, you don't need to know, but you are moved through this journey, through what the music yeah. does to you. But it's so interesting when you do Unpack it to see. Number one, the skill. Yep. Now, this isn't just a guy who just sat down and wrote a tune. Underneath, where you're not even expecting it, and you know, there's skill that you can't imagine. And the economy. We talked about the economy. So you know, you're in G minor, you're in E flat, and you're just, just one note. One note. note and yes. you completely change the character. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that that E, that E flat. We're about to hear. He, he was. This, was this, this. It's, it's the, the same, same notes. tune. Yep he snuck it in yep. so when you hear he was despised maybe it's, in part of your mind yep, you're hearing the- I've heard that before yep After he was despised, the, the, this keeps ratcheting up. It's more, I mean, because we're, we're approaching a moment of transition, right? Because unlike a passion, which ends with the crucifixion and then a very, you know, the response to it. Yes. Messiah is taking us all the way through to Revelation. So at some point we have to turn. Turn. But before we turn, he really nails nails home this. And it's all social isolation. Does this connect to what we talked about before about the social and moral conditions of when when it was? I think it does.
1: I think it does. It's It's that we have lost our path. We have lost our way. And at this moment, everything is chaotic. So it's again it's not illustrating the the death or crucifixion of Christ it is it's the breaking of his heart <laughs>
3: So we're at a low point. We've had an intervention. But as we've said before, we're not finished yet. In other words, we're heading in another direction. And I think that's what's so important about Messiah is it has a positive resolution. Yes, and this is the fulcrum right here at this point. Right at this point, Because we're not far away from the Hallelujah Chorus. And what interests me is how um, military, not just militaristic, but it's rough. When we turn towards glory, we turn towards violence
0: movement 8 Messiah
3: and Empire thou shalt break them you know thou shalt yeah so there's an element of glory and let's say warishness well that's what the
1: 18th century is all about dominance. Uh, military might, rule Britannia, you know? And it really was to show England in a good light. It considered itself the new Jerusalem. It became the centerpiece, the crown jewel of everything that represented England and the British Empire and the colonies. It just spread.
3: We're, We're fighting other cultures, we're fighting other lands, we're fighting for England. And that's what's so interesting to me about how the Messiah got re-evaluated yeah. at a time when imperialism became the dominant English way of life. These are the days in the late 19th, early 20th century when you'd have, as you talked about before, the Messiah. Thousands. Thousands, thousands of people well, performed it it, it. it became the vehicle for these
1: things. Hallelujah.
3: talk about messiah being corrupted to my ear this is what that sounds like
1: and it's just again might is right kind of it shows a different
3: kind of aspect of this music And I have talked about where Messiah is popular, and it's not universally popular around the no, world. No,
1: it's English-speaking, primarily. and those places the in Empire, Africa. Yes,
3: so you you hear it in France, you hear it in Italy. But you if you go on YouTube to look for versions of the Hallelujah Chorus, you yep. find them from Nigeria and you find them from South Africa, yep. and you find them every place that the tentacles of Empire. English Empire went. Yep, so. but
1: that's uh, that's adding a layer from our own experience, and i try and ignore that <laughs> uh, in in my in my job so to speak uh, when i get to this point i'm trying to make this the revelation the the glory the light the shining light and and for me that's what no matter what underlying motives were there or what what they may have been expressing in the original texts as well in terms of domination of uh, christendom over other faiths. For me, it is uh, praise God. The, the, the words uh, hallelujah actually mean uh, praise to God. Praise
0: 9. I know that my Redeemer liveth.
3: So despite, you know, how Messiah may have been used or abused, you know, if we go back into the work, the last section of part it three. after, yeah, yes. part three, it's a very, very important part of the work, obviously, because this is the point where we we as Christians or members of the faith or members of the human race finally achieve uh, our final destiny, you know? Yep. And this notion of transformation, this notion that death can be defeated, yep. this notion that we can be changed and we can achieve you know, eternal life, is so powerful, I mean, in everyone. Well, we, we something. need
1: something to grasp onto, because if it, if we die and that's
3: it, yeah. that's hard to swallow, It is right? hard to swallow, but, you know, more and more, it interests me, you know, more and more in the 20th century, philosophers, artists, and and, and individuals tried to come to terms with that, yeah. you know? Because the century that they witnessed exactly. uh, forced them into putting aside, or at least um, not being able to grasp so quite so comfortably and yeah. quite so easily this notion that oh everything will be fine in the end you know but it doesn't make it any less needful i think i no. think we still need it yeah. and 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 to me this last section even in its in its truncated form is really really powerful and it all leads in effect to the final chorus the amen this is the most contrapuntal oh, the amazing. most complicated piece that they're going to be singing all day yeah. or hearing all day yeah it's and a masterwork. So we've looked and, and and mentioned that subtly, like we saw in Behold the Lamb of God and the way it was connected to um, He Was Despised, very much under the surface. Mm-hmm. But the fugal beauty of the Amen is right on the surface. It's,
1: it's and the, it, the artistry in how he takes f- uh, simple outline, which basically boils down to five notes. Mm-hmm. That's five notes, which incorporate the opening of the men, and then he will play with that and do every contrapuntal compositional uh, technique possible. And it sounds to me like chant. It reminds me of Gregorian chant. It's gone the whole octave here in a few bars. Now the next voice comes in. a beautiful melody again as yeah, well. But you see there's no orchestra here. That's right. It's just the choir with continuum. And now they have a cadence... This most amazing angelic
3: yes, just music. It's just the violins, right? Yes,
1: a duet between the two violins, like two angels calling to one another. We see heaven in this, and when we least expect it, the glory of the Lord just hits us right where he needs to.
3: So we've come to the end of the journey with that, Amen. Um, And as you've mentioned, you've been conducting Messiah for 35 years. One would think that all of the secrets it has have been revealed to you. So what are the secrets, the essence of this piece that maybe isn't on the surface? If someone didn't know this piece of music at all and said to you, Messiah, I've heard about this. what, What should I know about this piece of music? What would you say to them? It speaks, for me, of humanity,
1: its frailties, its possibilities, its hopes. Whether you're religious or not, whether you're of a certain faith or not, there is something elemental in the way these texts and the way the music hits you if you are open to it. Whether I'm listening to it, whether I'm directing it, uh, it, oh, I never get tired. I can never get tired of it. There's always something new that is revealed to me. That's the mystery, and that's what Jennings wanted. That's the mystery of this amazing work.
3: Livers, thank you for taking us on this chair. It's been really, really fascinating. It's such a rich experience, and you've been so generous in expressing and sharing all of your incredible insights into the piece. So thank you oh, very thank much. Thank
1: you. It's been a real joy.
0: been listening to messiah revealed featuring ivars torrens director of the tafel music chamber choir and ideas contributor robert harris technical production danielle duval the web producer for ideas is lisa ayuso the senior producer is nikola Lukšič. the executive producer of ideas is greg kelly and i'm nala Ayad.